or justification by works, by law keeping. He just preaches that message like trust in Christ, not in your works of the law, which is interesting that he would do that. But Paul's summary is belief for justification, belief specifically in Christ and in, in for what? Forgiveness of sins, justification, forgiveness of sins. This is what everyone from every Jew in Jerusalem to anywhere the Apostle Paul, this is the gospel. This is the message that Paul's taking everywhere is do not trust in how good you are because you are not good enough. I don't care what law you're trying to keep. I don't even care if it's God's law you're trying to keep. You are not keeping it well enough. Trust in the Messiah. Trust in the Christ who did keep God's law. Okay, well, if you want to open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 13, we left off in Acts chapter 13 last time. I had the pulpit, and we're going to pick up actually in verse 13. I thought I would read just a couple of verses from this chapter. What I would kind of say is the crescendo of this This passage, I'm going to read verses 22 and verses 23, and then we'll pray. Here it says, Acts 13, 22. And when they had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Let's pray. Well, Father, you have promised that you would send your Son into this world. You gave many details into that promise, Lord, and you fulfilled your word and you sent your son into this world to die for sinners like us, Lord, and we're not thankful enough, Lord. We don't sing loud enough, Lord. We don't walk lives worthy of your gospel, Lord. We fail in many ways, and so we thank you for sending the faithful one, Jesus Christ, to live a life that we cannot live, Lord. We were fallen, Lord. We're depraved. Lord, we need your grace every day. We thank you for the grace that we do have. We thank you for the grace that we have to even believe the gospel, to turn from sin, to praise you with with what we do have, Lord. We look forward to that day when we will worship you rightly, when you will be worshiped without sin, when you will be praised as you should be praised, when we will be able to join the holy angels and sing as you deserve, Lord, and we will be able to serve you as we were created to do, Lord. We look forward to that day, Lord. Help Help this time now, Lord, as we open up your word to benefit us, Lord, this time while we're still here, while we struggle, why we desire to live more holy lives, Lord, while we desire to spread your gospel in this world, Lord, we pray that you would use your word to that end, Lord. Sanctify us in your word. Your word is truth. Lord, we thank you for for preserving your word for us, that we have Bibles, that we have a church, that we have safety, that we have time to study your word, Lord. Please bless, bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Acts 13, verses 13 through 42 is going to be our text. I actually had a comparatively very easy week because my sermon was handed to me on a silver platter because my text for my sermon is Paul's sermon. Luke recorded for us. Nearly 30 verses here uh, dedicated to this sermon that the Apostle Paul 
preaches. It's, it's actually the very first recorded sermon of the Apostle Paul that we have in the book of Acts. Uh, like I said, it's nearly 30 verses. That's actually a lot of text that we have given to us, uh, dedicated to this sermon. I say that's a lot because most of the sermons we see, even Jesus' sermons in the Gospels, uh, the Apostles' sermons in, in uh, the book of Acts, there are generally not a lot of text verses dedicated to these sermons. Really, I would say with maybe the exception of Stephen's sermon, that large sermon in Acts chapter 7, the sermons we have are just like highlights. We're getting the highlights, the, the inspired highlights of these sermons. But with Paul's first sermon, Luke actually gives us nearly 30 verses. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to try to get through this whole sermon and as we look at Paul's first sermon here, that the, the first thing that I noticed was that there was a very stark similarity between Paul's preaching of the gospel, Paul's sermon, and the sermons we've already seen in the book of Acts. We've had multiple sermons by the apostle Peter. We've had Stephen's uh, lengthy sermon given there in Acts chapter 7. And this is kind of an outline of the apostolic sermons, of the apostolic preaching of the gospel, um, I just put three points here. I said, first of all, what we see in these sermons by the, by the apostles of Jesus Christ, number one, you usually have an establishment and a reminder to the people that the, that, that's being preached to of God's revelation, God's grace, God's provision that he's given since the beginning of time to his people, they, they normally begin by recounting the works of God throughout history for his people. And then the second point is the sermon's climax in a preaching of Jesus Christ and how Jesus Christ is the focus and point of all of history. Jesus Christ is, uh, as the theologians call, call it, the telos of all of God's previous workings. And then last but not least, the apostles always give a call to repent and believe in this Jesus who came at the climax of history. And they preach Jesus primarily for the forgiveness of sins. That's a pretty basic, ordinary outline that you're going to notice through the apostolic preaching. I maybe add one caveat to that last point when they preach repentance and faith. Um, a lot of times, and we'll see it in Paul's sermon here, that they also caveat with a mention of uh, judgment, coming judgment and the wrath of God. So that is also included in a lot of these preachings. So there's a lot of consistency in the gospel preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts. And as we're going to look at uh, Paul's sermon here, I just thought by way of application, when you're reading a sermon from an apostle in your Bible, uh, the, the number one application of, of studying and reading the preaching of the gospel is first and foremost to believe the message preached. That should be the, the primary application of what we do with this text um, is to believe everything that is preached. And so as you're hearing the Apostle Paul preach, um, erase any doubt, any questioning of the message preached by Jesus' apostles. What you do is you actively submit your reasoning to God's statements of reality. Um, do not doubt the miraculous working of God in the past. Don't question Jesus as being the consummation of all history and God's salvation. And do not doubt for a second the reality that Jesus will come back and judge the living and the dead. Jesus' apostles were given this message uh, by God himself, it, by himself. It's not to be doubted. So first application of studying Paul's sermon is to believe that. Second application, I put, is to make the apostle Paul's gospel, to make his gospel presentation the gospel that you preach. We need to preach the apostolic gospel. We need to preach the same message that the apostles preached. That's in part of why God put this into Scripture, is that we would believe it and that this would be the gospel that we preached. And so, as I said, the, 
If you're trying to outline an evangelistic sermon, you can use the outline that the apostles use. And that is basically, again, that God's been revealing himself and been revealing this coming salvation since the very beginning of time. And that Jesus Christ is the ultimate, is the final revelation of God, and Jesus is his salvation. And remind them to repent and believe because judgment is coming. And it's as we preach Jesus, um, we can remind people that it's not just a judgment coming concerning what you do with Jesus, but actually it's Jesus himself who will come and judge So that adds a little weight, I think, as people consider what are they going to do with Jesus? Well, they need to think that and be reminded that it is, in fact, this Jesus that they will stand before on that day. So as we move to Paul's sermon here, as I said, I'm going to pick up in verse 13. We picked up there because we left off with a few verses at the beginning of Acts 13. Last time, if you recall, where we're at in Acts is... These three men, Paul, Barnabas, John, Mark, they're sent out from the church in Antioch to start what is known as Paul's first missionary journey. That's what's begun. And the first place they stopped was on that island of Cyprus. Uh, Luke says that they preached preached throughout that entire island. Um, And so remember, as, as this preaching, as we talk about this being Paul's sermon, as as Paul begins preaching in this first missionary journey, by no means is this the beginning of Paul's preaching. He's been preaching for years. I tried to establish that last time. But what we're kind of seeing, I would say the transition in the book of Acts is we're moving from Paul's kind of localized evangelism and local church teaching to mission work, which what's the difference between evangelism and mission work? Well, I mean, it's the traveling, it's the church planting those kind of distinctions. So this is, this is something, in a sense, new for, new for the Apostle Paul himself. And he's preached in this island of Cyprus already. And there, I just kind of said, like, the, the pattern is set. The pattern for the preaching of the gospel is this. Some believe and some do not. And we already saw that in Cyprus with some believing and some opposing the message of the Apostle Paul. So let's dive in. Let's begin in verse 13. It says here, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, and they came to Persia in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Persia and came to Antioch in Pisidia. So, as we said, Paul and crew, they were in Cyprus. They're leaving Cyprus. They're sailing northeast across the Mediterranean Sea, and they've made their way to a a city called Antioch. But do not be confused. This Antioch, they didn't just go back to where they came from. Remember, the, the church that sent them out was in Antioch. That's known as Syrian Antioch. This is Pisidian Antioch, a different Antioch. Um, it actually can get very confusing If you start looking, just Googling the word Antioch, first century Antioch, because there's actually about 15 or 16 different Antiochs in the first century world at that time. That's a lot of cities called Antioch. And so these cities were actually named after Antiochus self-proclaimed Epiphanes, Antiochus Epiphanes, um, which means he named himself that. He's the revelation of God, Epiphany. But interestingly enough, this guy who has all these cities named after him, he's actually the guy who in 167 BC, he's the guy, he's a a Greek ruler. He's the one who enters the Jewish temple and desecrates the temple by offering a a pig, right? Um, An unclean pig upon the altar. And this just incites the Jews Um, There there was already, obviously, a tension between the Jews and the Greeks at that time. And all of this spirals into what is known as the Maccabean Revolt. Uh, This Jewish family, the Maccabees, who start this big, successful revolt against the Greeks. That's all documented in those apocryphal writings, 1 and 2 Maccabees. That's the discussion of that historical event. So 
That, that's who these cities are named after. And I just thought that's so, it's so interesting that Paul lives in a city and Luke still uses the name of this city Antioch when it's such a defiled name, title or person that it's referencing, right? But that's, it's like the world they lived in. That, that's the world they lived in is a fallen world where you have enemies of God having, you're living in cities named after them and that's where you are ministering. So another interesting point here about this Antioch. So Antioch is in Pisidia. Pisidia is in the greater region of Galatia. So Paul is now entering the Galatian regions, right? We know the Galatian regions because Paul's going to later write a book of Galatians to these churches and actually confront a lot of the issues with doctrine and this church is going back, in a sense, to Judaism, misapplying the law of God. They're, they're, they're forgetting the doctrine of justification by faith alone that Paul's going to preach in this very sermon. That church is, is falling away from the gospel. So we start seeing, in a sense, this overlap between Paul's missionary journeys and the book that we're studying with Jason, the book of Galatians. And so I love seeing those connections and putting the Bible together like that is, is, is helpful um, last thing to note about this, what we've read already, is did you notice the mention there in verse 13 of John leaving the group? Luke mentions that John goes back to Jerusalem. And I'm not going to get into this issue now for the sake of time, because that issue is going to rear its head again in uh, chapter 15. We'll kind of address the situation there. Nothing's explained in detail here about why. Uh, John Mark leaves the group, but suffice it to say that the Apostle Paul did not see this departure from the group as being a legitimate uh, departure from the group. It's actually, uh, it was, according to the Apostle Paul, this must have been some kind of compromise, some kind of uh, uh, cowardice maybe on John Mark's part of why he left. I mean, they're just getting started with the first mission and John Mark's already bailing out. Um, And so, this is actually going to cause a rift between the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, the son of encouragement. I mean, can you imagine, like, if those brothers can split over this, this must have been a nasty, a nasty uh, debate and issue. So we'll talk about that later. So um, at the end of the day, we, we only started off with three men, and we're already down to two. John Mark went back home. Now we have Paul and Barnabas. So second half of verse 14 Paul and Barnabas made their way all the way to Antioch. And it says, On the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, And I stop there, says, it's kind of interesting to me, and it's, well, it's obviously typical for Paul. We kind of established this last time. Uh, his mode of operation is to go where the Word of God already exists. He goes into the synagogue, and it's kind of interesting. Paul and Barnabas show up to the synagogue, and the synagogue invites them uh, to speak. Um, that may have just been a, a, a common practice, you know, with communication not being like it is now. Somebody new comes in, you allow them to speak, you want to know what's going on what's going on in Jerusalem, what's going on in Antioch, but they're given the floor to speak. Um, You know, Paul was a Pharisee. Paul was a rabbi. Maybe he had the rabbi attire still that set him apart that could be recognized as one to have the floor. But for whatever reason, Paul is given the floor and it says he motions with his hand. I don't know what that motion is, but whatever it was, it does the trick to get people to pay attention. So he motions with his hand and now we pick up with his sermon. Here we go. Paul says, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. So it's a mixed congregation, Jew-Gentile. You have the God-fearers and and the Jews in the synagogue. Paul says, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers And made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. 
So I stop just to comment here. Paul just begins this message with, as I noted, the similar uh, beginning point as Stephen, for instance, where uh, when Stephen was preaching to the Jews in Jerusalem, he begins with recounting the long, gracious, redemptive workings, the salvific workings of God with the people of Israel. Verse 19, he continues this. He says, And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After that, he gave them judges until the Samuel prophet. Then they asked for a king. God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. When he had been removed, uh, when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all of my will. And so this is, this is the buildup. This is how Paul begins his sermon by recounting, giving this really high level overview of redemptive history, recounting to the Jews all of God's provision for leadership, for direction over the centuries. But what's happening here, and as we'll notice here in the next verse, verse 23, this isn't just some kind of basic Jewish history lesson, like the Jews know all this, right? He's not telling them anything they don't already know. It's just not a, it's not a recounting of Jewish antiquity. What, what it's doing is Paul's making the point here that all of God's workings, all of his provisions have been leading to verse 23, which says, Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. That's the argument. That's the point of all that history is that all of this is moving to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's Promises. So since the very beginning, since Genesis 3.15, God has been pointing his people to the seed to come, a seed that would not simply conquer the surrounding nations of Israel, but one who would conquer the serpent, Satan himself. And so as you see, as you recount God's history, what God's been doing with Israel in their history, he's been ensuring the seed He's been protecting the seed. He's been watching over this lineage that would continue until the fullness of times had come. And really, that's, that's Paul's point, is that the fullness of times had in fact come and the seed of David had arrived. Now, what is the ref, why this reference to the seed of David? What's the significance of David? Well, God made that covenant promise to King David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, and the promise to King David was that one of his descendants, one of his seed, would sit on his throne and reign in his kingdom forever. That was the promise. So this reference to King David is, oh, you're talking about one of his descendants, of whom Jesus was, that would reign as king forever. And we're, we're actually going to come back to the significance of King David in this sermon in verse 24, we have an interesting reference to John the Baptist. Paul references John the Baptist, verse 24. Before his coming, John proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no. But behold, after me one is coming the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Now, I said it's an interesting, it's not interesting to us, I don't think, to reference John the Baptist, right? We all know the significance of John the Baptist. We all recognize his, his, uh, his calling to prepare the people for the coming of Jesus. But it surprised me as I thought about where Paul is. As I keep referencing this map in the back of my Bible just to see where they're at. I thought, oh, wow, like these Jews know who John the Baptist is. I mean, we're, we're, I think it was like 200 miles from Antioch to Cyprus, and now they went another 200 miles farther than that. So they're 400-something miles away from Antioch. 
and, and he's just referencing John the Baptist like everybody knows John the Baptist, but the commentators actually point out, and uh, you'll remember the reference. So again, Ephesus is another 200 miles farther away from where they're at now. In Acts chapter 19, if you remember, when Paul makes it there, he meets these guys, John the Baptist's disciples, right? They're the ones who didn't know there was a Holy Spirit. So people knew about John the Baptist four, 600 miles away from Israel at this point, which to me was very interesting that the word traveled. So people knew, and if they knew about John the Baptist, certainly they knew something about Christ. I mean, that's who John the Baptist was preparing the people for. So it was an interesting reference to me, but not so, I guess, interesting once you realize that, yes, word had traveled this far about John the Baptist even. And so Elijah had first come, as Jesus said. Um, So Paul continues preaching Jesus. Verse 26, I know it seems like I'm moving through the text quick, which I am, but I'm trying to get through all of it. Verse 26, Paul says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, again, that's the reference to the Gentile believers, to us has been sent... The message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. So I want to stop here, note a couple things about what was just said. First and foremost, in as I move through the book of Acts, this is something I'm, I'm being conscious of. As the apostles preach, I want to hear their apologetic. I want to hear their argument. I want, to, I want to make the same argument. I want to have the same foundations for my preaching, right, for my evangelism. And so what is Paul's, what's the foundation of Paul's preaching? What's, what's his reference point? Well, he mentioned it there. He, he, he mentioned the utterances of the prophets, which is, the scriptures, the prophets are the scriptures. And so Paul is arguing for, for what is known. Uh, we, we know what we know. We know what we preach because God has preserved his word. We, we know because the word of God says so. That's, that's the basis for Paul's preaching, for Paul's arguments. As we're going to see, all of his references, in essence, go back to the word of God. He's going to quote the word of God a lot in this sermon But second, notice what I'm calling the irony of ironies. Paul points out that the scriptures, and he's speaking to Jews in the synagogue who who do this. Paul points out that the scriptures are, in fact, read by the Jews every Sabbath. But the great irony is that they actually fulfilled the scriptures they read not in the way they would have wanted to have fulfilled them or not the way they even had guessed that they fulfilled them, but the Jews fulfill the scriptures by missing the Messiah that was prophesied in their Bibles. And so the Jews who, who have the Bible, who read the Bible, who preach it and, and, and read it every Sabbath, in reality, the rejection of their Christ, uh, they should have seen it. They They should have seen it typologically. In essence, you know, God, as Paul recounted, all these prophets, all these leaders, all these kings, um, all these judges, these these leaders that God provided, typologically you see as the people argue and and fight against, you know, against Moses, you know, people rebelled against the the provision of God and, and leadership. In essence, that was all typological of the coming Messiah who they would also reject. And so you have a typological pictures being painted in the scriptures that they're fulfilling. But then you have the explicit texts. Um, Isaiah 53 came to mind, this language explicitly about the Messiah, unmistakably, Isaiah 53, right? Um, He was despised. He was rejected by men. We esteemed him not. The scripture talking about the crucified Messiah explicitly mentions and talks about how Israel esteemed him not and they rejected him. And so it's ironic um, that this is the situation. I mean, you remember Jesus with the Jews 
many times in the Gospels. He, he, he's saying, you guys have the scriptures. You know them. You have them memorized. But that doesn't mean you even understand the things you're making confident assertions about. Um, application for that reality and the reality is many, many groups have the Bible. Every false religion has the scriptures, in, a, in essence, the same scriptures as us, any pseudo-Christian group. They all have the Bible, but that isn't in and of itself enough. They misapply the Bible. They misunderstand the Bible. They twist the scriptures. And so the Jews were doing the same thing here. And so my, my application for that is, is we mustn't downplay the good and necessary place for theology. Because it's not just, you know, who has the Bible or who even knows the Bible. Um, it really comes down to, it's who by the grace of God understands the Bible and who, and who can put all of the Bible together. Because that's, that's the trick. Whoever understands how all of the Bible works is, is right because God's word doesn't uh, conflict. God's word doesn't, isn't uh, contradictory. And so your theology has to, to work all of the scripture. And whoever does that has the best theology and best uh, grasp of the word of God. Now, obviously, nobody understands every aspect of the Bible perfectly. But the goal should be to have a systematic theology of the Bible that can include everything that the, that the Bible has said. And that's because uh, that should be the goal because faith is based on what God has said. And whoever understands what God has said most accurately should have the most solid foundation for their faith. Right? If your understanding of the word of God is off, your faith, and that should be the foundation of your faith, your, your faith can be off. You could be misbelieving something, some truth about God or something else about his standards. And so that's just a plug for um, having a, a good systematic theology. The goal is that we'd understand all of the scriptures and how they work together so that we don't make uh, the misapplications like um, the Jews did. We might come out with some eschatology like Kinsey's got or something. You know, we don't, we don't want that to happen. So the Jews of the first century, and I'm going to make another reference to... Uh, eschatology, I think, here in a minute. I wasn't going to, but I, I'm going to make a point about kind of how I approach eschatology. And it really, all it is is wiggling out of a commitment of it is what it ends up being. But um, So the Jews of the first century, they, they did have the scriptures. And unfortunately, the scriptures that they had said that they would reject the Messiah and they did just what the scriptures said. And in essence, it's the irony of ironies. So now, the Apostle Paul, there's going to be a transition. He's going to transition now to the topic of the resurrection. The Apostle Paul is really going to focus in on the resurrection of Jesus. When you read through all, if you do a, a, a flyby of all the sermons in the book of Acts, the resurrection is at the core. And, and I think, you know, just to plug in our minds as we're trying to have apostolic gospels, we, we miss, we, we do not reference and we don't emphasize the resurrection probably as much as we should. When I think about like our evangelism and stuff, why am I not talking about the resurrection like Paul is, right? So that's something maybe we need to shore up on our, in our in our gospel presentations, and really probably what it is, it's our theology of the resurrection. We don't, we don't have the weight that it deserves probably is why we're not bringing that up. But that does become the core of the apostolic gospel, the resurrection. The resurrection, a la Romans chapter 1, is God's definitive declaration that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Messiah, the resurrection. That's, that's what weight it bears. And so again, as, as Paul preaches the resurrection, what is he referencing for the resurrection? What's the foundation for, for understanding or believing in the resurrection? It's the scriptures. It's the scriptures. And I'm actually kind of um, 
making that point because there's actually a, a big movement in kind of modern evangelical uh, apologetics um, in those circles. There's a group of guys who, who are attempting, and you, I'm sure you've heard it, but their goal is to preach the resurrection from a purely historical um, angle. So these are guys like your William Lane Craig's, your Gary Habermas's, Frank Turek, those kind of guys. They've, they've given a, a name to this apologetic. It's the minimal facts argument. So that they've, they've given a name to this, to this argument for the resurrection. They're trying to approach it from a purely historical angle. And so their, their argument kind of goes something like this. As I tried to concise it down to a statement, This is what they're saying. They say, the gospel accounts concerning the resurrection display some qualities in them that would lend one to believe that they have a good probability of being trustworthy. Just hear the language. I mean, this is how they speak. Like, when you read your Bible, it sounds like it should be, you know, pretty trustworthy. And so they reason, so if the accounts of Jesus' resurrection in the gospel seem to be trustworthy, then maybe you should consider what else the gospel accounts say about Jesus as also being trustworthy as well. So they're kind of arguing from the lesser to the greater, like, um, and, and, and when they're saying they sound trustworthy, they're just simply applying, like, secular standards of historicity. Like, that's, that's their whole thing is is, well, what would an atheist consider to be valid history, right? And we're going to just use those as our standards. And so these guys, the more I listen to them, I've given them a fair shake. I've listened to them. They're really arguing backwards. They're arguing backwards from secular standards for what is considered valid history, for like the truthfulness of the Bible. Um, Their obvious motivation is, is they're trying to satisfy the skeptics, you know, who don't believe in the Bible and don't believe that you can just start with saying the Bible says, right? They're trying to satisfy this kind of more neutral um, and kind of fair way of handling history. But the problem with, with this angle and the, and the difference between what the Apostle Paul and therefore what we should do is they're really, and hopefully unknowingly is what they're doing, they're really sacrificing the authority, the foundation uh, of the Bible for, for knowing truth they're sacrificing the authority of the Bible to prove the Bible, right? So they're trying to say, like, well, let's lay aside. Let's, let's act like the Bible's not the authority. Let's use this other standards over here that, that even atheists kind of accept, and hopefully we can prove that the Bible's true. Well, what's the problem with that? The problem is, is if you're using this other authority to prove that the Bible's true, well, truth is not found here then. This other thing, whatever you're arguing from that makes this true is what the is what truth is. That's where truth is found. That's the standard for truth. So you're really, you're really cutting your legs out from underneath you when you, when you argue this way. Um, I don't like it. I don't like the way they do that. Um, so let's, let's hear the way Paul uh, preaches the resurrection, the way Paul tries to convince people of the resurrection, what, what is his foundational truths. Um, because Paul can mention the historical reality of the empty tomb. He actually will. He's going to mention uh, the, the reality of witnesses seeing the risen Christ. But he never presents these things like, like these guys try to present these things as like standalone historical facts or like just brute facts, right, that have no theological uh, import, right? Like they can just be uh, looked at by themselves, um, the, the only reason the resurrection occurred was to fulfill the word of God. Uh, the only way you know the meaning, the significance, or why the, ha- the resurrection happened is in the word of God. There's nothing else that you're going to learn why this happened or how this happened. Um, you can't remove the authority of the word of God to argue for the word of God. Um, I, I've heard someone tell it like this, like you could, you could go down this line of argument with an atheist, convince an atheist on historical grounds alone that Jesus rose from the dead, and the atheist could be like, okay, historically it sounds like Jesus rose from the dead. Like, 
that's weird. It's a weird world. Weird things happen, right? Like you watch YouTube, you see weird stuff, like weird stuff happens. I mean, that can be their conclusion because they don't have the authority of the word of God telling them why that happened. You know, what's the significance of it? What's the point? Um, Just a rand, proving somebody in essence, a random fact doesn't, doesn't get them where you need them to go. Because apart from the Bible, the resurrection is just another random event in a random chaotic universe. You, we need the word of God to be the, the foundation for the preaching of the resurrection. So enough preaching on that, but let's see how Paul does this. Let's look at Paul's resurrection argument here, beginning in verse 28. So Paul says, And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were now his witnesses to the people. So I grant the reference here to the historical reality. He just states it as a historical event. Jesus was raised from the dead. There's there's witnesses to this resurrection. But verse 32, look at the, the next verse, because the meaning of this miraculous event is found in God's word only. Verse 32, Paul says, And we bring to you the good news that what God promised to the fathers This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. The resurrection, it it was fulfilling to us, their children, by raising Jesus. First, where did God promise? So what is this fulfillment um, that Paul references? Where in the Bible does it speak of a resurrected Messiah? a resurrected Messiah, because as we look at, Paul's going to bring up three uh, proof texts from the Old Testament. And if you go just read these three verses, you might think those verses don't prove the resurrection or how do those, what do those have to do with the resurrection, right? So one point to take away from, from Paul's preaching of the gospel is when you look at the way he interprets, the way he uses the Old Testament, He does not simply uh, utilize a historical grammatical hermeneutic. You guys familiar with the distinctions in in hermeneutics? So how you understand the Bible, how you interpret the Bible, where there's a a group of, of Christians who say you can only interpret the Bible through a historical grammatical interpretation, meaning in history, when King David wrote these words, whatever they meant then at that time in history and however you can understand that verse using, you know, rules of, of literature and grammar, that's all that verse can mean. It means what it says, and that's all it can mean, right? Well, if you take that kind of interpretive method uh, alone, you are not going to arrive, and you would not be able to understand, or you would, you would have to say Paul's misapplying these Bible verses that he's quoting because, um, because the Apostle Paul doesn't simply utilize, and neither did Jesus, I mean, if you have a red-letter Bible um, with all of Jesus' quotes, or even better, if you have a Bible, I think the NASB does this. It's one reason I like the NASB, is anytime the NASB quotes an Old Testament verse, it puts it in italics. So you can just flip through your Bible and very easily notice every time it's quoting the Old Testament. And if you just go do a scan, do a readover of quotes from the Old Testament and the way they're being utilized by the apostles, very quickly you're going to see They are not using a historical grammatical interpretation. Instead, what they're using is a historical grammatical Christological hermeneutic. And and as we're going to see in these verses, I mean, it's it's hard to argue with this. I mean, that's the way they use the Bible in a Christ-centered. That hermeneutic has been entitled like a redemptive historical hermeneutic, which I probably fall under that. I like that 
camp. It seems to take everything as I'm saying, because there is a historical grammatical use for all these texts, right? When David is singing this psalm, it meant something at that time to that king, right? Um, Today I have begotten you. That psalm was used um, to, to rein in the new king, and, and that psalm would be read as, today I have begotten you, meaning you are now the new king, right? But, so there's a historical reality to those, but it doesn't end there. That's not how the apostles, there's actually a fulfillment to these Bible verses. These, these verses were pointing beyond the historical grammatical. So let's see how that, let's see how that plays out. So Paul's going to quote three, by, three proof texts from the Old Testament to argue for the, for the resurrection. Let's see if we can use some of these verses in our evangelism on the streets and try to preach like Paul preached. Because we can, and I missed out a good opportunity on one of these, I'll tell you when I get to it. But um, here Paul says, picking up in the end of verse 33, as it is also written in the second psalm. Now that's kind of interesting. I never noticed, and this is another side note. I like the side notes. Um, this is the only time like a chapter in the, in the Bible is mentioned by a New Testament author. He references the second psalm, right? That's, I'm like, oh, wow, that's usually in what in Hebrews, it's like he said somewhere and then a quote, right? But here, Paul quotes the second psalm and he quotes this section from it. You are my son, today I have begotten you. He quotes just that phrase as a proof text for the argument for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Psalm 2, as most of you probably know, it's one of the most quoted Old Testament uh, texts in the New Testament for, for very good reason. You read Psalm 2, Psalm 2 is explicitly messianic, um, undoubtedly speaking of the Messiah to come. Paul quotes just verse 7 of Psalm 2 as his proof text for the resurrection. But as I'm saying, when you go just read Psalm 2, uh, this, this text isn't going to seem, seem like an obvious argument for the resurrection if you just read it from a historical grammatical standpoint. Uh, the text doesn't mention, doesn't have the word resurrection. It doesn't mention anything about being raised again. Instead, and, and this is what was going to be my point earlier is, it, it's, it's, I, w- I would say it's the same as with Old Testament prophecy as with New Testament prophecy, is that it's, you really are not going to understand the fulfillment of the prophecy until the fulfillment has, has arrived. And then once the fulfillment has arrived, then you can more accurately compare uh, for instance, just say the coming of the Messiah, right? He was prophesied. If you just tried to, 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 to picture in your mind of who Jesus was going to be, you know, what he was going to do just based off the prophecies, you wouldn't have been able to formulate. But then Jesus came, and then you can look back upon the text, and you see, oh, like, that's what that text was saying, and that's how that played out. In the, and I say, this is my argument eschatology-wise, is I, I'm, I'm expecting the same thing. I want to study future prophecy so I know it, but I'm not going to spend too much trying trying to develop what I think all that's going to look like. I think when it happens, right, uh, those who have the scripture by grace will be able to interpret rightly what's happening, but I just don't spend too much time trying to figure that out now, if that makes sense. And that's kind of my, my wiggle way out, right? So I don't have to argue with Kinsey all the time about what I don't know. But that's, that's how I see, that's how I saw prophecy functioning for, for the coming of Christ, which was the big prophecy. What's the second big prophecy? Jesus coming back again, right? So I'm, I'm kind of trying to be consistent with my hermeneutics and, and apply them the same way. So it does wiggle me out of a lot of those, those arguments. But I think, so if you look at Psalm 2, for time's sake, I wasn't going to read the whole thing. You recognize the language. Once you have Christ in mind, once, you, once Paul is preaching Jesus Christ, uh, dead, uh, buried, raised again, and then you're presented with Psalm 2, everything starts coming to light. 
Um, and, and, and this is valid. The apostle Paul, the inspired apostle, is using Psalm 2 as an argument for the resurrection. So this is a valid interpretation whether you see it or not, right? That's the problem is if the apostle says that's what's happening, that's what's happening. So once you have Christ in mind and you have this picture at the beginning of Psalm 2, right? You have the, the people raging. Why do the people rage against the Lord, against his anointed you have this plotting against the Lord's anointing, right? The people are coming against the Messiah. And then there's a transition. The transition is quickly, you see, from all this plotting, now you have this once plotted against Messiah. Now he's being declared the son of Yahweh. He's now reigning over them. And so you have this typological picture of one being plotted against, one being um, the, the rage being carried out against this Messiah, and then all of a sudden, boom, now he's reigning. Now he's declared the Son of God, which obviously has to be a picture of death and resurrection. That's how the Apostle Paul uses Psalm chapter 2, Today you are my Son, I have begotten you. Let's look at another one, because they get trickier. His next quote is from Isaiah 55, 3. Again, Paul arguing for the resurrection. Verse 34. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. We mentioned already, but what are the holy and sure blessings of David? Well, it's the, the covenantal promise to David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 that one of his children would sit on his kingdom, sit on his throne forever. And so Paul quotes that text from Isaiah, referencing the sure blessings of David, and he applies it to Jesus. Now, why would you apply it to Jesus? Well, he references King David. King David was seeing corruption. King David was dead in the grave. But Jesus Christ, because he was raised from the dead, because he was resurrected, only the resurrected one has that ability to reign forever. The one who's dead is not, does not have the ability to reign forever. Solomon, his son, did not have the ability. He's dead in the grave. But the resurrected Jesus, who was raised imperishable, he's able. He's able to reign and sit on the throne of David Forever, You need a resurrected Messiah to fulfill 2 Samuel chapter 7 is Paul's, has to be Paul's argument. Okay, last one. Verse 35, Paul's now going to quote Psalm 16. Psalm 16, verse 10. Paul says, therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. And he was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised did not see corruption. So again, he's, he's, he's arguing in the same way. He references King David. Um, King David is dead, is seeing corruption. He's rotting in the grave. But the resurrection of Jesus is the fulfillment, the proof that he is, in fact, the Holy One of Israel. Jesus is not seeing corruption. Jesus is resurrected anew. He is certainly God's anointed Holy One. David cannot be the Holy One because he's seeing corruption. I said this could still be, if we run into some Jews some believing Jews, some practicing Jews, this could still be a very good uh, text to go to because if you go to Israel now, if you go to the, the, the West, uh, if you go to the Wailing Wall, right, where all the Jews are putting in their prayers and right, doing all that motion, right next to the Wailing Wall, like literally you walk down the wall and there's an open door and if you walk through that open door, there's like a Jewish seminary in essence and you walk in there and there's all these practicing Jews and they're just memorizing Torah, they're, they're reading, they're memorizing scrolls, and you walk through the, and it's so weird, it's open to the public, these guys are like chanting uh, scripture, learning Torah, and uh, memorizing, that's, all, that's seemingly all they're doing, there's not a teacher, 
They just have the Bible and they're just memorizing and quoting, right? Just missing the Messiah all the, the whole time. But that's what they're doing. And, and it's just open. You can walk in there. They don't pay you no mind. They just keep doing what they're doing. You walk through another door and they have a huge uh, decorated coffin, uh, which they, to, they believe is King David, his, his uh, remains. Nobody, I think, historically, like I looked into that, like nobody thinks that's actually King David's remains. But they, for some reason, it's almost kind of like what the Catholics did with the, what do we call it, the... Uh, remains they had like the cross and it's like a venerated little it's probably not true but um so anyways king david i mean the the argument still stands is that king david is not sitting on the throne reigning forever he's still there in that box in y'all's little seminary room y'all need a resurrected messiah to sit on david's throne forever and, and you have one so that would be an interesting text to take paul used it it's got to be a good one right the Apostle Paul used that argument. So um, let, me, let me finish up here. Let me see. Yeah, Paul's closing up here. So he's, he's, he's making all these scriptural arguments. In essence, his argument is building up. What, what Paul is saying is that because of all this, because Jesus is in fact the promised Messiah, Uh, who fulfilled all of these scriptural passages in his life, death, and resurrection, because all that's true, because Jesus is the Messiah, verse 38. We have a therefore. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything. I don't know why they translated it freed. It's literally dikaio, which is, which is justified. I don't know why they translate it twice as freed. I mean, I kind of get it, but we always translate that word as justified. Just So was the King James. They, yeah, that's good. So they nailed it on that one. So I'm going to read it as justified. I, I, I think especially in light of Paul's theology and Paul's language, that's the language he would use. So By him, everyone who believes is justified from everything from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Justification by faith in Christ. And so what I thought was interesting is I try to put myself uh, with Paul through his missionary journey. He shows up to this synagogue hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem, and the apostle Paul assumes that these Jews, in essence, are making the same theological mistake that the Jews in Jerusalem were making, that Jesus interacted with. Um, They're they're not believing, and they're not looking for and trusting in a Messiah. They're trying to be justified by the law of Moses. They're making, in essence, the same basic error that every human makes, Jew and Gentile alike. Everyone is born with the same worthless and elementary principle of salvation by works. This is what mankind does. And the Apostle Paul shows up hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem and assumes and preaches against justification by faith or justification by works by law keeping. He just preaches that message like trust in Christ, not in your works of the law, which is interesting that he would do that. But Paul's summary is, Belief for justification, belief specifically in Christ, and in, in for what? Forgiveness of sins, justification, forgiveness of sins. This is what everyone from every Jew in Jerusalem to anywhere the Apostle Paul, this is the gospel. This is the message that Paul's taking everywhere is do not trust in how good you are because you are not good enough. I don't care what law you're trying to keep. I don't even care if it's God's law you're trying to keep. You are not keeping it well enough. Trust in the Messiah. Trust in the Christ who did keep God's law. That's the gospel. Look to Christ, not to yourself. That's why we preach the law. We're showing people that they're not going to be justified by law keeping. They're not even doing what they are hoping they're going to do. They think they're keeping it well enough. They're not, right? So that, in essence, is Paul's gospel. He's preaching Christ. He's pointing people to Jesus 
Christ. Faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone. Through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Now, Paul could have left it there. Paul could have ended right there. And that sounded to me like a very good place to end, right? End on justification by faith in Christ. Well, I guess Paul didn't pay attention in Gamaliel's like homiletics class, right? As Gamaliel was teaching him how to preach. And, you know, Paul, like, end on a high note, end on like a good note so the people, you win the people's favor and everybody likes you when your sermon's over, right? Paul must not have been paying attention in class that day because the Apostle Paul, first and foremost, is not one to manipulate. He just speaks the truth in love. And the truth is, is that there is something to be worried about and something to fear. And so Paul, in essence, ends on a threat. He ends on a a reminder of judgment. Verse 40, Paul ends by saying, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. So that's sad because Paul ends on a very direct warning about unbelief and about rejecting the preaching of the gospel, about ignoring the preaching of the gospel. He quotes Habakkuk with this warning, using the language of perishing. And as Jesus described what hell is like, as Paul describes what hell is like, and you think about perishing, that's a terrifying being cursed, being under the wrath of God. A very good way to end the sermon with a, a warning. But unfortunately, as, as we've seen and as Jason's been taking us through Galatians, these churches did not, some of the people in the churches did not heed the warning They believed the good news about this resurrected Messiah. They had trusted solely in in the Christ. And some of them did not fear the repercussions of of not maintaining that faith. And some of them are being persuaded to trust in works of the law and circumcisions and things of these natures. They did not fear the warning that Paul gave. They, They forgot this warning. Same warning holds for us not to scoff. At the preaching of the gospel, I I understand our sermons can be too long. I understand they may not be great. They can be boring. There's no more important thing in the entire world, and I know it's hard to convince ourselves of this. I have to convince myself of this, but there's nothing more important in the entire world than what we're talking about right now. There's nothing even remotely close. When we look back one day, we'll, we'll be fully convinced, man, we wasted a lot of thinking, a lot of time thinking and caring about things that did not matter at all. And so by the grace of God, we're here. God, you know, by example, set up weekly reminders for the church to do these things, to remind ourselves of these things. We're about to take the supper, which will remind us of these things. And so thinking about Galatians, I think it would be proper as we hear the gospel preached by Paul, Paul also will come and say to these Galatians that if anybody else was to get up in this pulpit and preach another gospel, or if if your parents preach to you another gospel besides faith in Christ alone, Or if any pastor that we hire comes up here and preaches another gospel, or or as Paul says, if even an angel from heaven comes down and we're all amazed and, and frightened and he preaches another gospel, let whoever that is be accursed. That's actually a command. Let him be accursed is it's that's a command. And so that's what God's telling us. If somebody preaches another gospel, we will curse that man or woman these days, who knows who would try to get up. But I think that's a sober warning. That's, 
I think maybe if Paul, hindsight being 2020, if he could go back to Galatia and, you know, if he had, he seemed surprised in the book of Galatians that they were so quickly deserting him who called them, right? Like, I can't believe you guys are leaving the gospel already. He may have devoted a little more of that text to the warnings um, so they would not think that there was any option of turning from faith in Christ alone. So that's the Apostle Paul's preaching. Um, Let's pray. Well, Father, I thank you for inscripturating the preaching of Jesus, the preaching of your apostles. Lord, we're blessed to have these words written down, preserved for us. Lord, that we might be sure of the gospel. Lord, we were talking earlier about what if we didn't have Bibles? What if we didn't, what if all the truth we had was taken away? We would be utterly lost. We would be in utter anarchy. We, we would and should be like animals, Lord, not knowing why we're here, what's going to happen, what is the purpose for all of this, who is God. But Lord, in your grace, you've given us 66 books, Lord. You've given us more more words, Lord, than, than a lifetime has to fully understand and interpret, Lord. You have lavished us with, with all of this grace, Lord. We pray that by your Spirit, we would understand your word, Lord, that we would be led in the truth. Lord, have mercy on us, Lord. Be with those who weren't able to make it today, Lord. Bless them. May the, may the media be able to reach them and minister to them that they would just once again renew their commitment to your gospel, to Jesus Christ, to believing in in his resurrection and trust alone in him for salvation. Lord, we thank you for all.